0: This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to the hub. the writer's strike with some curiosity and some interest because I, I'm, I'm pro-union, so I'm going to support the writers because, you know, I'm, I'm a union sister. Uh, but I've also been curious about the way that AI and, and chat GPT and all of these other innovations have really complicated some traditional conversations and notions about work, about labor, about whose labor is valued and whose labor can be uh substituted for a few clicks on the computer. And I was scrolling as I am wont to do, and I happened upon uh, a Twitter thread by one Bertram Lee Jr. And uh, one of the things that he pointed out was that, and he literally says in this tweet, one thing I want to flag, if folks haven't seen this issue from the WGA West strike that is not getting nearly enough attention and how it fits within the broader context of AI regulation. He links to an image, a graphic, That shows one of the points of contention in this labor dispute. And one of the things that the writers are fighting for is a provision that would ensure uh, that their the use of artificial intelligence would be regulated on projects that are covered by their bargaining agreement. And they are hoping to secure an agreement that says that artificial intelligence can't be used to write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as source material and cannot be used to train AI. And we are notified in that same graph that that proposal was rejected and it was countered by the bosses, for lack of a better word, offering annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology. I want you all to think about this. There is a technology out there that could completely eradicate your role in the social structure, and the bosses want to talk about it on an annual basis. Joining me right now is Bertram Lee, and he is a senior policy counsel, uh, data, decision-making, and artificial intelligence at the Future of Privacy Forum, where he leads FPF's work on artificial intelligence. Previously, he was counsel for media and tech at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, one of the organizations I love to love, uh, where he worked to advance the interests of marginalized communities in technology and media policy. His portfolio included broad broadband access, media diversity, facial recognition, something I'm still a little petrified about, uh, law enforcement surveillance technologies, something we should all be petrified about, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and a whole host of other uh, arenas that really prepare him well to navigate this conversation. Bertram Lee, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm um, happy to be here.
0: Absolutely, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm a, I'm one of those folks who's still a little concerned about artificial intelligence. And I've heard people say, oh, you can't fear it. You have to embrace it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally willing to embrace it. I love a good cheat code to living as much as anybody else. But when I saw your thread and it alerted for me again, some of the real concerns that we should have about artificial intelligence in an unregulated form. And I was so glad grateful that you were able to join us today. Give us some more context behind what your concerns were that you were highlighting in that thread. This is just one example of the ways that artificial intelligence could potentially threaten entire industries, is that correct?
1: So uh, let's take a step back. Let's talk about, there's artificial intelligence is a big broad umbrella term for a lot of technologies that we use today, right? There's artificial intelligence in our Google search. There's artificial intelligence in our translation app. There's artificial intelligence in uh, Shazam, right? Um, We use AI all the time. Um, in a variety of contexts. What I think the writer strike was talking about is this kind of large language models, right? Um, and generative AI. And so generative AI large language models have been around for a while. Think about if you use uh, Microsoft Word or Grammarly, right? Uh, to correct your sentences and statements. Those are large language models as well. They're predicting um, what the right correction is, what the right term is based on what you've written before, based on all uh-huh. of these different kinds of writings that they've had. And so I think it's important to like take a step back and talk about what technology we're talking about when we're talking about artificial intelligence. The specificity matters in that context. And then also when it comes to the writer's strike, when it comes to um, also these uh, larger union and labor disputes, uh, what we're seeing is a real pushback. Um, by laborers in these contexts about how you're using our labor right you saw the same thing with uber drivers um, talking pushing back on uber saying like hey um, you're using this in order to train uh, AI to do um, you know driverless cars right for example and so um, that's a big context but it it gets even more complicated because there are intellectual property concerns attributed to those things as well, right? Um, Mm -hmm. What of these materials that has been used to train these large language models has been copyrighted. Um, For example, um, we're talking about that with um, the generative AI and image generation AI. For example, like there are lawsuits currently on the um with those as well. There's also currently, I think, lawsuits by Reddit um, on the copyrightability of their material on their website oh, and wow. how it's been used uh to kind of like fuel generative AI and large language models as well. This is a contested space. This is a new technology. Well, not a new technology, it's a new um the technology is now available to everyone in ways that it wasn't before and transformer models that are a part of these large language models um, have changed the technology drastically. And there is real use behind them. There are risks. um, There is uh, disinformation risks. There's what we call hallucinations um, within the context of those models, um, which is basically the model saying something that is false um, or not true. But then there's Did you call that a
0: hallucination the- or a hallucination? I thought I misheard. I was like, is that a new hallucination? A hallucination. I was like, Hulu has its own Sorry. category? Okay, all right, hallucinations. No, uh, so that's when the computer is basically, it got it wrong.
1: When the model says something wrong, right? Um, when okay. the model gets information wrong. But then there are also all of these benefits, right? Um, if you are a small business, and you are kind of struggling to hire people within kind of like the economy, and you need someone to kind of help you with a draft of something or help you draft out a marketing email, these technologies have democratized a lot of work, but it's also threatened a lot of folks' jobs. And so there's a balancing kind of um, act that I think the administration and really the world is trying to work through as these technologies become more ubiquitous.
0: You know, as you're talking, I'm reminded that a friend of mine, because, you know, I, I've sort of had these these concerns for a little while, but a friend of mine, maybe a week or so ago, sent into a group chat uh, a link to a video that they had put into chat GPT, and they were basically like, I need a marketing video for my podcast. And she was like, y'all, check this out. So we're looking at, I'm like, oh my God, it's got images, it had script, it had, it, I mean, it was as if she had paid somebody to put together a marketing, a 90 second marketing piece for her podcast. She doesn't have video and capacity to edit and do all of this. It was extraordinarily useful, but also really, really scary if I'm someone who produces this sort of content for a living. Have you seen examples on the international scale? But before we zero in here on how we're doing, are we addressing it or not addressing it here in the United States? Have you seen examples internationally of countries that are attempting to incorporate uh, generative AI, predictive AI, I tried to write down all the phrases, to incorporate these things in ways that are going to be useful, meaningful for society without also causing harm that is really uh, too much for the job market to sustain? Have you seen that in practice in ways that give you some hope?
1: So I think, I wouldn't say in practice, what I would say is, excuse me, um, I would say that EU is looking to regulate AI through the EU AI Act. That's actually been, there's an agreement that was formed a couple weeks ago um, by the parties. I think something is coming out later this year um, that is going to be more substantive. And that is the European Union's attempt to regulate AI. And they included pieces about generative AI. And so uh, I think you can kind of look at the EU AI Act as saying, well, have you thought about harms? Have you Mm -hmm. tested the AI itself? And has the AI been kind of like properly uh, vetted through channels, right? And if it's high risk, right, um, what are the kind of like spaces in which um, that AI has been tested um, and that AI and the risk has been mitigated, right? Uh, The NIST AI risk management framework does something similar, but it's voluntary framework. The EU AI Act is not. And so like those are kind of like ways that I think have been, I think some of the most effective ways in which um, or pieces of potential AI regulation or kind of like guidance um, that have come out most recently that I think a lot of people are looking towards. Um, Particularly a lot of companies are looking at the EU AI Act, the more restrictive it is, um, and kind of like pushing back against certain provisions of it. Um, And then on the NIST risk management framework, um, industry, civil society, um, and the government came together and said, hey, this is how we would like the framework to work. Now, the framework, again, is voluntary. It's not mandatory, um, but it is. it gives companies a way in which to think about their own AI governance structure. And I think something to also keep in mind is that AI is new for a lot of businesses as well, right? Um, I think a lot of businesses are still on their journeys on AI governance right now. And so mm. this is an evolving space, like every, <laughs> I swear, Every week, something happens that like changes, I think, the context of the work that I do or like what I'm focusing on. And it's something new in the field. And so this field is ever evolving. It has never evolved um, as fast as it has right now. When I entered into this field, it was moving fast. But now it is moving at lightning speed. And everyone in every field, in every space within our economy globally um, now has to think about the impact that AI is going to have on their work.
0: You said the MISC risk framework. What I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm saying it correctly. It's M I C risk framework. Is that an acronym? NIST, Can you tease that sorry. out for us? MISC. my DC okay. accent
1: is coming out. Uh, the National <laughs> Institutes for Standards and Technology um, is uh, ah. kind of a government agency. So basically, um, how big a credit card? Uh, how how big a credit card is? What what the weight of certain things is? Right. Um, what's the uh, NIST puts out standards, and so it put out standards for artificial intelligence. And that framework um, principally relies on like map, manage, govern, um, thinking about how the standards for artificial intelligence um, should be instituted within a business, um, particularly as it manages risk. And so there are certain high-risk behaviors that require a lot more guidance. There are certain low-risk behaviors uh, that don't require as much guidance, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence.
0: Now, is this separate and apart from the efforts that we've seen uh, folks like Elon Musk sign on to? There was an effort uh, that they had signed. uh, There was a number of, you know, really wealthy people who have done a lot to benefit from AI who are basically calling for some sort of pause. I think I'd seen like a six month pause. Is that separate and apart from the uh, the efforts that they were promulgating? Do you know
1: very much separate? That is a private industry effort um, to be able to say, hey, this is moving too fast even for the people who are in this space we should put a pause on it and so there are a variety of different um, folks who think differently about what that pause would mean whether it's a competitive issue whether it's an actual safety issue what are the real safety concerns um there are real and legitimate safety concerns particularly with generative ai so like let's take a step back let me explain what generative ai Generative AI is AI that is generated either from a prompt um, or from some sort of information that creates um, a, um, let's just say, um, some sort of content in and of itself, right? It's generating content. So if you were to say, all right, AI, uh, generate Lurie on a bicycle riding down the park, right, and I give it a photo of your face, right, and then it generates from that a photo of you riding a bike down a park, right, that's generative AI. Generative AI can also be something to use in voice, right? This is something that happened actually in Australia. Um, The generative AI around voice recognition technology was able to trick um, a bank verification system um, that used voice to be able to say, "Hey, um, now these techn- uh, to be able to say, hey, this is someone else's voice,' and it got it to say what it needs to be said, and it can be based off of a YouTube video. It doesn't actually have to be a lot of um, a lot of content to be able to do this kind of, um, I would say, uh, trickery or to be able to mimic someone's voice." And then there's also large link. Can I models.
0: pause you right there? I I have a yep. I just have a question. I use this service. Um, it's a Speechify. The service is called Speechify. I just gave them free promotion. You you also sponsor the show. I use you a lot. But I use a service called Speechify, where I if I'm doing a whole lot and maybe I'm cooking or I'm doing my, my kids' hair or talking, you know, doing going to pick up my husband, something like that, but I need to get some content in my brain. I will take the link from whatever website or whatever it is and I'll type it into Speechify and then they read it to me out loud. But I you can pick a voice. So I I pick Snoop Dogg's voice because there's nothing like hearing a discussion about the the debt ceiling from Snoop Dogg. And so like, it's it's just a thing. It's weird. My husband is like, Oh, we should use that with the kids. Because I bet you we could get more kids interested in news if Snoop Dogg were reading it to them. Is that a similar form of technology? Or is that a, a completely different category?
1: No, it's a very similar form of technology. It's a generative AI concept. It's generative AI content based on all the words that Snoop said, right? It says, all right, this is the text. This is how likely we think Snoop would say this in this circumstance, right? And so it's very much artificial intelligence. It's very much generative AI in that way. And so like you're using generative AI often. Um, And, you know, um, that's I think that's something that I think a lot of people don't know and a lot of folks, particularly from our communities, don't necessarily understand is that how pervasive artificial intelligence is to things that they like, but also how artificial intelligence provides risks in spaces that they didn't even know were being engaged in, right? Particularly when it comes to housing, credit, lending, um, you know, education, right, like employment. And so there are a lot of spaces that we still have to kind of like do a lot of catch up in to be able mm. to figure out, hey, is the artificial intelligence compliant with the law, right? And I think that's an open question. And how compliant is it, right? So uh, disparate impact, something you're very familiar with, right? So yes. in, a little too in, familiar. Like, <laughs> exactly. But like that, that context of like, how AI is compliant with disparate impact theory is hard because race and gender are easy to um, under like race and gender are easy to kind of get from large data sets. You can get a lot of different ways in which you can, by not using a lot of personal information, you can get race um, and gender information fairly easily, right? And age information pretty easily. Right. But without thinking about, um, kind of like specifics, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, uh, disability, religion, or even country of origin, depending on the, the context, right, becomes even harder, right? And so like, wow. how do you do disparate impact along those protected classes um, with a, in a data minimization environment that we're currently in, that a lot of um, both state legislatures who were passing privacy laws, but also um, it, from the context of the GDPR and the EU context are requiring companies to engage in. It. We haven't really wrestled with that question, right? Huh. Particularly when artificial intelligence is engaging in the actual action, or is at least assisting in the actions um, that were generally protected through traditional civil rights laws.
0: So it feels like in some ways that the battles that we're seeing in the example of the uh, of the writer strike, it feels like we have people who are engaged in a battle that is farther along in its discourse than the law has gotten in its ability to manage. And that that's always frightening for, you know, attorneys, because it's like, how do we it's because it creates another wild, wild west sort of effect where we're trying to create uh, an environment where we're taking norms that we generally understand in one context, maybe applying them to another context, but they don't often fit well if they fit well we'd have a legal regime that would be able to manage it how are we approach how what is the what are your hopes I know asking a lawyer about their hopes is a weird thing but what is it (laughs) what are your hopes that Our country will be able to get a handle on how AI should be regulated in a way that's in keeping with American norms and expectations. And and do you do you believe that we can reach that level of understanding fast enough to disrupt whatever potential negative harms might come from this WGA strike? I mean, their response was to to say we're going to have an annual, you know, team building conversation about it. I mean, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I was like, really? Like that's what you came back with to the bargaining table? It seemed like. like a half of not nearly far enough.
1: I can't speak for the WGA um, folks or for the studios. Um, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to. Um, and so, um, you know, legalese, 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 caveat, caveat, yeah, yeah. caveat. Disclaimer, so, um, disclaimer, but,
0: disclaimer. But, <laughs> right,
1: um, I'm I'm not involved in that. I think it's an interesting observation from an AI policy perspective. And So I just want to like clarify that, right? Yeah. But I think there are two things that I think folks, there are two things that I keep in mind, and I think they're, they seem diametrical. They seem diametrically opposed, but they're actually kind of the same. Um, one: How do you get clarity and transparency in a compliance structure so that people know that the services that they're using, right, are not actively discriminating against them, right, or hurting mm. them? or taking away opportunity, or treating them fairly and equally, right? Hmm. How do you do that? While also ensuring that, understanding that people didn't choose this, and that like this whole, there was a recent statistic that I just saw today, was that only 14%, were 14%, which is actually I think a pretty large number, 14% of US adults have used ChatGPT. Wow. And so, which is like, a lo- it's a small or large number depending on who, you, on who you're asking, right? Large mm-hmm. number in the sense of like, wow, like 14% of the U.S. population is using a tool. But also, what about the other 86%?
0: Right. And what does it mean for right. them?
1: And what does it mean for those folks who don't have internet access? Maybe have a disability that does not allow them to use these tools. Right maybe they live in a community where um, they don't have actually like the the apps or the tools or the services or or, or the, the systems to actually be able to take advantage of this. What if they're elderly, right? Um, mm. You know, like, it, it, like, I think we haven't done the work, I think, so far of saying, hey, this isn't a decision that a lot of people have chosen. This is a decision that has been thrust upon people. And it's been move so quickly that institutions haven't had time to adjust. And these Mm -hmm. are institutions that will outlast all of us. And so what does that mean, right? What does that mean for democracy? What does that mean for people? What does that mean um, for marginalized and multi-marginalized communities? Uh, What does that mean for government and those structures? What does it mean for industry? And so like, how do you use these tools responsibly? How do you use these tools fairly? How do you help people understand what these tools actually are? And like that, those conversations are just beginning. No one has a collective answer to that quite yet.
0: Recognizing that you don't represent the WGA, you don't represent anyone in, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer, we're, we're completely talking about this as disinterested parties who are discussing it for the pure intellectual content thereof. So we ain't represent nobody, we ain't advocating for nobody, but let's just say an agreement of some sort is reached. And this question is really speaking to what are the patterns of, of regulating an advancement in technology like this after the fact. Right. So an agreement, let's say, is reached. If this is the first major agreement that's grappling with this issue, it's it's kind of precedent setting in a way. It will signal to other companies that perhaps this is the, the way that we've taken this approach is something we either should continue to spread or perhaps we, we see what they did. And we're like, oh, wait, no, that was a disaster. We definitely don't want to do that. Is there, are there examples in our country of having advancements in technologies contracted around, negotiated around, bargained around in ways that the law coming after has had to say, wait a minute, we know that you guys engaged in this contractual agreement before we had a law about it, but your contract is actually not in keeping with where we think the law should go. So we're going to force an undoing of that contract, a revision. Do we have examples of that happening? And and I'm asking this because my concern is that If a a dispute this significant is able to be uh, resolved in some contractual way that is perhaps not in keeping with the way that American policy nationally wants to go when it comes to this sort of technology. Are there tools for clawing that contract back limiting its impact and its ability to be replicated in other contexts, or or is the law even that good that it could do something that way.
1: So there's a current proposal in the House that hasn't made its way to the Senate yet um, that I testified on last year, which is the American Data Privacy Protection Act, right? That would regulate artificial intelligence. Um, And then there's Senator Schumer, um, Senator Peters, um, and um, a number of members in the House are also looking at what AI legislation and regulation might look like. Um, uh, Lisa Blunt Rochester recently put out um, a bill on on, uh, artificial intelligence as well. Um, uh, Representative Ted Liu is working on one as well, I think he just announced. And so um, there are a number of folks who are working on proposals in uh, in Congress. And as you know, if Congress passes a law, that tells everybody what to do. So then you go back to the contract and say, all right, is this compliant with the law, right? And in what context. And I think uh, that's important to keep in mind where it's just like, there are proposals that would change these things. But actually, I think the historical significance of this, and actually, I think um, a good comp is the telephone. Hmm. And like, and how the Federal Communications uh, Commission was created in response to the telephone in response to the communications technology and right. regulating those, and then Telegram as well, right? And I think that is like, I think that's the moment that we're in, but I don't know, but we also have a, regulatory agencies that have control over those things, such as um, you have the Federal Trade Commission, for example, um, which is another example of, of a commission that um, has broad regulatory authority, right? the FTC, for example, before um, the, um, uh, the, uh, housing, before housing and urban development, um, before HUD came through, um, was regulating and kind of like fighting discrimination case by case as an unfair and deceptive mm-hmm. trade practice, right, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, before the Civil Rights Act. And so we have um, examples of this. We have a historical context to this. I just think it's so new that no one knows what to do quite yet with it. And there are a lot of different ideas about, well, what will make us competitive with China? What will make it, what is, what is fairness look even look like? Uh, what does discrimination look like? Are there equities of a lot of people taken into account? And this is where I think um, my frustration sometimes with folks in the technology policy space kind of intersect is that you are now, not everyone is going to get it right, but everyone is going to, but you're facing a democratic process. And democratic processes are slow, they're messy, uh, there are compromises, there is not a lot of perfection in them, right? And a lot of people want to move fast and just like not be kind of like subject to democratic processes. But like, that's not how the world works. You are subject Mm. to the spaces in which you are actually uh, a member. And so like, because you get all the benefits of the society, therefore you also have to deal with the fact of like how people react to these things. And, like, that's something that I think a lot of people are struggling with right now inside of the industry um, as to kind of, like, how to think about these things. And it's, like, it it takes a lot of people are looking at the trees instead of the forest. And it's hard. Mm. It's really difficult, particularly in today's environment with everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. So, so those, you know, worry warts out there and, you know, query whether I'm one of them, perhaps, depending on the topic, depending on the day, uh, we can be confident that even if there are private industry efforts at figuring this thing out, that there will be some sort of governmental regulation intervention at some point. Perhaps in the future, but I, I think you you raised some very good examples. The Fair Housing Act and, and and the the FCC coming after the phone. There was no reason for the FCC prior to the phone being created. That created a whole that invention created a whole host of questions that the government had to be involved in regulating. So we've seen how this can play out in the past. So we don't need to fear. Is my my ultimate goal. We don't have need to have fear about this thing. This we're not going to turn into iRobot like in the next six months or anything. But we do need to I think be engaged perhaps in in knowing how the government is thinking about these issues. Uh, we have a very active audience. And if we put out a power alert that says, wait a minute, now there's a bill that we need to be aware of. You all need to contact your congresspersons and, and your senators, both of them. Uh, th- we have an audience that will do that. What currently are you seeing in terms of potential activation points? Uh, what exists right now that Congress is considering? Are there policies that you find to be more uh, desirable than others from a purely analytical legal framework understanding and perhaps even an understanding as to how the ultimate Applications would, would show up for communities of color and, as you say, multiply marginalized communities. Uh, what's currently at issue or being debated in Congress that our audience should be aware of and perhaps even organize and galvanize around?
1: So, um, you know, uh, Future Privacy Forum does not advocate on behalf of bills, um, but in a previous like, leadership conference, um, I worked closely with... I'm so sorry.
0: Drivers. We nonpartisan <laughs> really conversations. So when you I'm you not know, here, I... And I'm... I
1: I I get it. I'm working with you. I'm right here. I'm right here with
0: you. I get it. And to be fair, I I know the difficulty you're in. I'm actually I I run a racial justice law center when I'm not doing this show. So I know that you're I'm asking you to balance a a nonpartisan partisan partisan divide right now. So um, not that you personally or your organization would be in favor of, but things that the American public should know about that are currently being debated, not that you're for or against.
1: I'll I'll put it this way. I think this is the this is a way that I can say this without um, uh, getting in trouble. Um, in a previous life, um, at my previous stop at leadership conference, it's human rights. Um, we advocated for particularly uh, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, and specifically Section two hundred seven. Section mm-hmm. two hundred seven would create a um, a. a I would say a cause of action for discrimination that is similar to public accommodations for the internet, mm-hmm. which there, which there is still debate as to whether public accommodations applies to the internet. That case has that case law has not gone through yet. Um, there's there are arguments on both sides of that, but I think um, Section two hundred seven, I think for particularly for marginalized and multi marginalized people, is critical. It gives folks it, it is a digital it is civil rights for the digital age. And, you know, there are things that are not perfect about ADPA. Um, I'll be the first to admit it. Um, But I think when I was working on it um, previously, and even while I testified on it, thinking through what does it mean to have a digital civil rights for marginalized communities? What does it mean to have a digital civil rights for us that like last generations past us? And I think that's something that I feel very passionate about that's a good. I think a lot of industry actually uh, is very supportive of digital civil rights, right? Um, It's a nonpartisan, it's a, not nonpartisan, I think it's a bipartisan issue. Um, uh, And I think there are a lot of folks who would love clarity as to what can and cannot happen. How that clarity comes about, what industry is or is not able to do, right? Um, How technologies change or don't change, uh, the context of the underlying data that was being that is being uh, uh, that informs a lot of the decisions that AI and algorithms are making, right? All of these conversations are up for grabs right now. There are two processes that are happening right now. Uh, NTIA, National Telecommunications and Information Administration, um, and the White House um, Office of Science and Technology Policy have both put out requests for comment and requests for information about what a national strategy around artificial intelligence would look like. I mean, this is, again, folks are looking for answers right now. And it it is an open question. And so the questions that we ask, the things that we care about, Um, the things that we think are really important to your, to our particular communities and to broadly more so America, right? Those are things that are being debated with artificial intelligence at the current moment. And it's, it's an incredible time to be a part of this conversation.
0: I'm really grateful that we have folks like you in these spaces to to help explain what this means, to help us tease out the implications in a nonpartisan way, Uh, but also in a way that that allows us to think about not just how is it beneficial to me, what could I gain from it, but what are the implications for society? And, And how do we as a collective decide what's in our collective best interest? These are always questions that have fascinated me since before law school. And so I appreciate being able to think about them in the artificial intelligence context i hope that we can call on you in the future for nonpartisan uh, perspectives on <laughs> the future of ai your organization is doing a lot of great work uh, how can people connect with you and the work that you all are doing there here after the show
1: please follow the future privacy forum um, please fo- uh, follow me on twitter uh, bmleejr um and uh yeah uh looking forward to the conversation would love to reach out to folks and always i'm happy to have a conversation with you murray and like i just i'm really honored to be here um it's really great
0: thank you it's the honor is ours sir we appreciate you keep up the good work and don't let any of these radio hosts get you into partisan trouble good job (laughs) way to avoid that thank you